Section 19 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 13b, 1561 to 1565, Part 2. A public disputation in the morning and a Latin play on the story of Dido in the evening formed the entertainment of Her Majesty on the third day. On the fourth, an English play called Ezekias was performed before her. The next morning she visited the different colleges, at each of which a Latin oration awaited her, and a parting present of gloves and confectionery, besides a volume richly bound, containing the verses in English, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Chaldee, composed by the members of each learned society in honour of her visit. Afterwards she repaired to St. Mary's Church, where a very long and very learned disputation by doctors in divinity was prepared for her amusement and edification. When it was ended, quote, the lords, and especially the Duke of Norfolk and Lord Robert Dudley, kneeling down, humbly desired Her Majesty to speak something to the university, and in Latin. Her Highness at the first refused, saying that if she might speak her mind in English she would not stick at the matter. But understanding by Mr. Secretary, that nothing might be said openly to the university in English, she required him the rather to speak, because he was Chancellor, and the Chancellor is the Queen's mouth. Whereunto he answered that he was Chancellor of the university, and not hers. Then the Bishop of Eli, kneeling, said that three words of her mouth were enough. By entreaties so urgent, she appeared to suffer herself to be prevailed upon to deliver a speech which had doubtless been prepared for the occasion, and very probably by Cecil himself. This harangue is not worth transcribing at length. It contains some disqualifying phrases respecting her own proficiency in learning, and a pretty profession of feminine bashfulness in delivering an unstudied speech before so erudite an auditory. Her attachment to the cause of learning was then set forth, and a paragraph followed which may thus be translated, quote, I saw this morning your sumptuous edifices founded by illustrious princes, my predecessors, for the benefit of learning. But while I viewed them, my mind was affected with sorrow, and I sighed like Alexander the Great, when, having perused the records of the deeds of other princes, turning to his friends or counsellors, he lamented that any one should have preceded him either in time or in actions. When I beheld your edifices, I grieved that I had done nothing in this kind. Yet did the vulgar proverb somewhat lessen, though it could not entirely remove my concern, that Rome was not built in a day. For my age is not yet so far advanced, neither is it yet so long since I began to reign, but that before I pay my debt to nature, unless Atropos should prematurely cut my thread, I may still be able to execute some distinguished undertaking, and never will I be diverted from the intention while life shall animate this frame. Should it, however, happen, as it may, I know not how soon, that I should be overtaken by death, before I have been able to perform this my promise, I will not fail to leave some great work to be executed after my decease, by which my memory may be rendered famous, others excited by my example, and all of you animated to great ardour in your studies." After such a speech it might naturally be inquired which college did she endow. But alas, the prevailing disposition of Elizabeth was the reverse of liberal, and her revenues, it may be added, were narrow. During the whole course of her long reign not a single conspicuous act of public munificence sheds its splendour on her name and the pledge thus solemnly and publicly given was never redeemed by her, living or dying. An annuity of twenty pounds bestowed, with the title of her scholar, on a pretty young man of the name of Preston, 
whose graceful performance in a public disputation and in the latin play of dido had particularly caught her fancy appears to have been the only solid benefit bestowed by her majesty in return for all the cost and all the learned incense lavished on her reception by this loyal and splendid university soon after her return from her progress the queen determined to gratify her feelings by conferring on her beloved dudley some signal testimonies of her royal regard and she invested him with the dignities of baron of denbigh and earl of leicester accompanying these honours with the splendid gift of kenilworth castle park and manor for in behalf of dudley and afterwards of essex she could even forget for a time her darling virtue frugality the chronicles of the time describe with extraordinary care and minuteness the whole pompous ceremonial of this creation but a much more lively and interesting description of this scene as well as of several others of which he was an eye-witness in the court of elizabeth has been handed down to us in the entertaining memoirs of sir james melville a scotch gentleman noted among the political agents or diplomatists of second rank whom that age of intrigue brought forth so abundantly a few particulars of the history of this person curious in themselves will also form a proper introduction to his narrative melville was born in fifeshire in the year fifteen thirty of a family patronized by the queen regent mary of guise who having taken into her own service his brothers robert and andrew both afterwards noted in public life determined to send james to france to be brought up as page to the queen her daughter then dauphiness he was accordingly placed under the care of the crafty montluc bishop of valence then on his return from his scotch embassy and previously to his embarkation for the continent he had the advantage of accompanying this master of intrigue on a secret mission to o'neill then the head of the irish rebels the youth was apparently not much delighted with his visit to this barbarous chieftain whose dwelling was quote, a great dark tower where says he we had cold cheer such as herrings and biscuit for it was lent arriving at paris the bishop caused him to be carefully instructed in all the requisite accomplishments of a page the french tongue dancing fencing and playing on the lute and after nine years spent under his protection melville passed into the service of the constable montmorency by whose interest he obtained a pension from the king of france whilst in this situation he was dispatched on a secret mission to scotland to learn the real designs of the prior of st andrews and to inform himself of the state of parties in that country in the year fifteen sixty he obtained permission from his own sovereign to travel and gained admission into the service of the elector palatine this prince employed him in an embassy of condolence on the death of francis the second some time after his return he received a commission from the queen of scots to make himself personally acquainted with the archduke charles who was proposed to her for a husband this done he made a tour in italy and then returned to the elector palatine at heidelberg he was next employed by maximilian king of the romans to carry to france the portrait of one of his daughters to whom proposals of marriage had been made on the part of charles the ninth at this court catherine de medici would gladly have detained him but a summons from his own queen determined him to repair again to Scotland. Duke Casimir, son of the Elector Palatine, having some time before made an offer of his hand to Queen Elizabeth, to which a dubious answer had been returned, requested Melville, in passing through England, to convey his picture to that princess. The envoy, secretly despairing of the suit, desired that he might also be furnished with portraits of the other members of the electoral family, and with some nominal commission, by means of which he might gain more easy access to the queen and produce the picture as if without design he was accordingly instructed to press 
for a more explicit answer than had yet been given to the proposal of an alliance offensive and defensive between england and the protestant princes of germany and thus prepared he reached london early in the year fifteen sixty four after some discourse with the queen on the ostensible object of his mission melville found occasion to break forth into earnest commendations of the elector whose service nothing he said but this duty to his own sovereign could have induced him to quit and he added that for the remembrance of so good a master he had desired to carry home with him his portrait as well as those of all his sons and daughters Quote, so soon as she heard me mention the pictures continues he she inquired if i had the picture of duke casimir desiring to see it and when i alleged that i had left the pictures in london she being then at hampton court and that i was ready to go forward on my journey she said i should not part till she had seen the pictures so the next day i delivered them all to her majesty and she desired to keep them all night and she called upon my lord robert dudley to be judge of duke casimir's picture and appointed me to meet her the next morning in her garden where she caused to deliver them all unto me giving me thanks for the sight of them i then offered unto her majesty all the pictures so she would permit me to retain the electors and his ladies but she would have none of them i had also sure information that first and last she despised the said duke casimir it was a little before this time that elizabeth had been consulted by mary on the proposal of the archduke and had declared by randolph her strong disapprobation of it she now told melville with whom she conversed on this and other subjects very familiarly and with apparent openness that she intended soon to mention as fit matches for his queen two noblemen one or other of whom she hoped to see her accept these two according to melville were dudley and lord darnley eldest son of the lord of lennox by the lady margaret douglas it must however be remarked that melville appears to be the only writer who asserts that the first suggestion of a union between mary and darnley came from the english queen who afterwards so vehemently opposed this step but be this as it may it is probable that elizabeth was more sincere in her desire to impede the austrian match than to promote any other for the queen of scots and with the former view melville accuses her of throwing out hints by which the archduke was encouraged to renew his suit to herself provoked as he asserts by this duplicity of which she soon received certain information mary returned a sharp answer to a letter from her kinswoman of seemingly friendly advice and hence had ensued a coldness and a cessation of intercourse between them but mary quote, fearing that if their discord continued it would cut off all correspondence between her and her friends in england end quote, thought good a few weeks after melville had returned to scotland to dispatch him again towards london quote, to deal with the queen of england with the spanish ambassador and with my lady margaret douglas and with sundry friends she had in england of different opinions it was the interest of neither sovereign at this time to be on bad terms with the other and their respective ministers and secretaries being also agreed among themselves to maintain harmony between the countries the excuses and explanations of melville were allowed to pass current and the demonstrations of amity were resumed between the hostile queens some particulars of the reception of this envoy at the english court are curious and may probably be relied on Quote, being arrived at london i lodged near the court which was at westminster my host immediately gave advertisement of my coming and that same night her majesty sent mr hatton afterwards governor of the isle of wight to welcome me and to show me that the next morning she would give me audience in her garden at eight of the clock the next morning mr hatton and mr randolph late agent for the queen of england in scotland came to my lodging to convey me to her majesty who was as they said already in the garden with them came a servant of my lord roberts with a horse and a footmantle of velvet laced with gold for me to ride upon 
which servants with the said horse waited upon me all the time that i remained there at a subsequent interview quote, the old friendship being renewed elizabeth inquired if the queen had sent any answer to the proposition of marriage made to her by mr randolph i answered as i had been instructed that my mistress thought little or nothing thereof but attended the meeting of some commissioners upon the borders to confer and treat upon all such matters of greatest importance as should be judged to concern the quiet of both countries and the satisfaction of both their majesties minds adding quote, the queen my mistress is minded as i have said to send for her part my lord of murray and the secretary liddington and expects your majesty will send my lord of bedford and my lord robert dudley she answered quote, it appeared i made but small account of my lord robert seeing i named the earl of bedford before him but that ere long she would make him a far greater earl and that i should see it done before my returning home for she esteemed him as her brother and best friend, whom she would have herself married had she ever minded to have taken a husband. But being determined to end her life in virginity, she wished the queen her sister might marry him, as meetest of all other with whom she could find in her heart to declare her second person. For being matched with him, it would remove out of her mind all fears and suspicions to be offended by any usurpation before her death, being assured that he was so loving and trusty that he would never suffer any such thing to be attempted during her time and that the queen my mistress might have the higher esteem of him, I was required to stay till I should see him made Earl of Leicester and Baron of Denby, which was done at Westminster with great solemnity, the queen herself helping to put on his ceremonial, mantle, he sitting upon his knees before her with a great gravity. But she could not refrain from putting her hand in his neck, smilingly tickling him, the French ambassador and I standing by. Then she turned, asking at me how I liked him. I answered that as he was a worthy servant, so he was happy who had a princess who could discern and reward good service. Yet, says she, you like better of yonder long lad, pointing towards my lord Darnley, who as nearest prince of the blood did bear the sword of honour that day before her. She appeared to be so affectionate to the queen her good sister, that she expressed a great desire to see her, and because there so much by her desired meeting could not so hastily be brought to pass, she appeared with great delight to look upon her majesty's picture, she took me to her bedchamber and opened a little cabinet wherein were diverse little pictures wrapped within paper and their names written with her own hand upon the papers upon the first that she took up was written my lord's picture i held the candle and pressed to see that picture so named she appeared loath to let me see it yet my importunity prevailed for a sight thereof and i found it to be the earl of leicester's picture I desired that I might have it to carry home to my queen which she refused alleging that she had but that one picture of his I said, Your Majesty hath here the original, for I perceived him at the furthest part of the chamber, speaking with Secretary Cecil. Then she took out the Queen's picture and kissed it, and I adventured to kiss her hand, for the great love evidenced therein to my mistress. She showed me also a fair ruby, as great as a tennis-ball. I desired that she would send either it or my Lord of Leicester's picture, as a token to my Queen. She said that if the Queen would follow her counsel, she would in process of time get all that she had that in the meantime she was resolved in a token to send her with me a fair diamond. It was at this time late after supper. She appointed me to be with her the next morning by eight of the clock, at which time she used to walk in her garden. She inquired of me many things relating to this kingdom, Scotland, and other countries wherein I had travelled. She caused me to dine with her dame of honour, my lady Strafford, an honourable and godly lady who had been at Geneva banished during the reign of Queen Mary that I might be always near her, that she might confer with me. At diverse meetings we had diverse purposes. 
the queen my mistress had instructed me to leave matters of gravity sometimes and cast in merry purposes lest otherwise she should be wearied she being well informed of that queen's natural temper therefore in declaring my observations of the customs of dutchland poland and italy the buskins of the women was not forgot and what country weed i thought best becoming gentlewomen the queen said she had clothes of every sort which every day thereafter so long as i was there she changed one day she had the english weed another the french and another the italian and so forth she asked me which of them became her best i answered in my judgment the italian dress which answer i found pleased her well for she delighted to show her golden-coloured hair wearing a caul and bonnet as they do in italy her hair was rather reddish than yellow curled in appearance naturally she desired to know of me what colour of hair was reputed best and whether my queen's hair or hers was best and which of them too was fairest i answered the fairness of them both was not their worst faults but she was earnest with me to declare which of them i judged fairest i said she was the fairest queen in england and mine in scotland yet she appeared earnest i answered they were both the fairest ladies in their countries that her majesty was whiter but my queen was very lovely she inquired which of them was of highest stature i said my queen then saith she she is too high for i myself am neither too high nor too low then she asked what exercises she used i answered that when i received my dispatch the queen was lately come from the highland hunting that when her more serious affairs permitted she was taken up with reading of histories that sometimes she recreated herself in playing upon the lute and virginals she asked if she played well i said reasonably for a queen that same day after dinner my lord of hunsdon drew me up to a quiet gallery that i might hear some music but he said he durst not avow it where i might hear the queen play upon the virginals after i had hearkened a while i took by the tapestry that hung before the door of the chamber and seeing her back was toward the door i ventured within the chamber and stood a pretty space hearing her play excellently well but she left off immediately so soon as she turned about and saw me she appeared to be surprised to see me, and came forward, seeming to strike me with her hand, alleging that she used not to play before men, but when she was solitary, to shun melancholy. She asked how I came there. I answered as I was walking with my lord of Hunsdon, as we passed by the chamber door, I heard such melody as ravished me, whereby I was drawn in ere I knew how, excusing my fault of homeliness as being brought up in the court of France, where such freedom was allowed declaring myself willing to endure what kind of punishment her majesty should be pleased to inflict upon me for so great an offence then she sat down low upon a cushion and i upon my knees by her but with her own hand she gave me a cushion to lay under my knee which at first i refused but she compelled me to take it she then called for my lady strafford out of the next chamber for the queen was alone she inquired whether my queen or she played best in that i found myself obliged to give her the praise she said my french was very good and asked if i could speak italian which she spoke reasonably well i told her majesty i had no time to learn the language not having been above two months in italy then she spake to me in dutch which was not good and would know what kind of books i most delighted in whether theology history or love matters i said i liked well of all the sorts here i took occasion to press earnestly my dispatch she said i was sooner weary of her company than she was of mine I told Her Majesty that though I had no reason of being weary, I knew my mistress her affairs called me home. Yet I was stayed two days longer that I might see her dance, as I was afterwards informed. Which being over, she inquired of me whether she or my queen danced best. I answered the queen danced not so high or disposedly as she did. Then again she wished that she might see the queen at some convenient place of meeting. 
I offered to convey her secretly to Scotland by post, clothed like a page, that under this disguise she might see the Queen, as James V had gone in disguise with his own ambassador, to see the Duke of Vendôme's sister, who should have been his wife, telling her that her chamber might be kept in her absence, as though she were sick, that none need be privy thereto except Lady Strafford, and one of the grooms of her chamber. She appeared to like that kind of language, only answered it with a sigh, saying, Alas, if I might do it thus! Respecting Leicester, Melville says that he was conveyed by him in his barge from Hampton Court to London, and that by the way he inquired of him what the Queen of Scots thought of him, and of the marriage proposed by Randolph. Quote, Whereunto, says he, I answered very coldly as I had been by my Queen commanded. End quote. Then he began to purge himself of so proud a pretense as to marry so great a queen, declaring that he did not esteem himself worthy to wipe her shoes, and that the invention of that proposition of marriage proceeded from Mr. Cecil, his secret enemy. Quote, For if I, said he, should have appeared desirous of that marriage, I should have offended both the queens and lost their favour. If we are to receive as sincere this declaration of his sentiments by Leicester, confessedly one of the deepest dissemblers of the age, what a curious view does it afford of the windings and intricacies of the character of Elizabeth, of the tissue of ingenious snares which she delighted to weave around the footsteps even of the man whom she most favoured, loved, and trusted. Perhaps she encouraged, if she did not originally devise, this matrimonial project purely as a romantic trial of his attachment to herself, and pleased her fancy with the idea of his rejecting for her a younger and a fairer queen. Perhaps she entertained a transient thought of making him her own husband, and wished previously to give him consequence by this proposal. Perhaps she meant nothing more than to perplex Mary by a variety of suitors, and thus delay her marriage, an event which she could not anticipate without vexation. That she was not sincere in her recommendation of Leicester is certain from the circumstance that when the Queen of Scots, appearing to incline to a speedy conclusion of the business, pressed to know on what conditions Elizabeth would give her approbation to the Union, the earnestness in the cause which she had before displayed immediately abated. Her conduct with respect to Darnley is equally involved in perplexity and double-dealing. Melville, as we have seen, asserts that it was Elizabeth herself who first mentioned him as a suitable match for the Queen of Scots. And if his relation be correct, which his partiality towards his own sovereign makes indeed somewhat doubtful, the English princess must have been well aware, when she conversed with him, of the favour with which the addresses of this young nobleman were likely to be received, though the envoy says that he forbore openly to express the sentiments of his court on this topic. It was after Melville's departure that Elizabeth, not indeed without reluctance and hesitation, permitted Darnley to accompany the earl his father into Scotland, ostensibly for the purpose of witnessing the reversal of the attainder formerly passed against him and his solemn restoration in blood. But really, as she must well have known, with the object of pushing his suit with the Queen. Mary no sooner beheld the handsome youth than she was seized with a passion for him, which she determined to gratify. But apprehensive, with reason, of the interference of Elizabeth, she disguised for the present her inclinations, and engaged with a feigned earnestness in negotiations preparatory to a union with Leicester. Meanwhile she was secretly soliciting at Rome the necessary dispensation for marrying within the prohibited degrees of the Church and it was not till the arrival of this instrument was speedily expected, and all her other preparations were complete, that taking off the mask she requested her good sister's approbation of her approaching nuptials with Lord Darnley. It is scarcely credible that a person of Elizabeth's sagacity, with her means of gaining intelligence and after all that had passed, could have been surprised by this notification of the intentions of the Queen of Scots, 
and it is even problematical how far she was really displeased at the occurrence. Except by imitating her perpetual celibacy, a compliment to her envy and her example which could not in reason be expected, it might seem impossible for the Queen of Scots better to consult the views and wishes of her kinswoman than by uniting herself to Darnley. A subject, and an English subject, a near relation both of her own and Elizabeth's, and a man on whom nature had bestowed not a single quality calculated to render him either formidable or respectable. The Queen of England, however, frowardly bent on opposing the match to the utmost, directed Sir Nicholas Throgmorton, her ambassador, to set before the eyes of Mary a long array of objections and impediments, and he was further authorized secretly to promise support to such of the Scottish nobles as would undertake to oppose it. She ordered in the most imperious terms the Earl of Lennox and his son to return immediately into England, threw the Countess of Lennox into the tower by way of intimidation, and caused her privy councillor to exercise their ingenuity in discovering the manifold inconveniences and dangers likely to arise to herself and to her country from the alliance of the Queen of Scots with a house so nearly connected with the English crown. Mary, however, persisted in accomplishing the union on which her mind was set. Darnley and his father neglected Elizabeth's order of recall, and her privy council vexed her by drawing from the melancholy forebodings which she had urged them to promulgate two unwelcome inferences, that the Queen ought to lose no time in forming a connection which might cut off the hopes of others, by giving to the nation posterity of her own, and that as the Lennox family were known papists, it would now be expedient to exercise against all of that persuasion the utmost severity of the penal laws. The Earl of Murray and some other malcontent lords in Scotland were the only persons who entered with warmth and sincerity into the measures of Elizabeth against the marriage, for they alone had any personal interest in impeding the advancement of the Lennox family. Rashly relying on the assurances which they had received of aid from England, they took up arms against their sovereign, but finding no support from any quarter, they were soon compelled to make their escape across the border and seek refuge with the Earl of Bedford, Lord Warden of the Marches. On their arrival in London, the royal dissembler insisted on their declaring, in presence of the French and Spanish ambassadors, that their rebellious attempts had received no encouragement from her. But after this open disavowal she permitted them to remain unmolested in her dominions, secretly supplying them with money, and interceding with their offended sovereign in their behalf. Melville acquaints us that when Sir Nicholas Throgmorton, on returning from his embassy, found that the promises which he had made to these malcontents had been disclaimed both by Her Majesty and by Randolph, he, quote, stood in awe neither of Queen nor Council to declare the verity that he had made such promises in her name, whereof the councillors and craftiest courtiers thought strange, and were resolving to punish him for avowing the same promise to be made in his mistress's name, had not he wisely and circumspectly obtained an act of counsel for his warrant, which he offered to produce and the said Sir Nicholas was so angry that he had been made an instrument to deceive the said banished lords, that he advised them to sue humbly for pardon at their own queen's hand, and to engage never again to offend her for satisfaction of any prince alive. And because, as they were then stated, they had no interest, he penned for them a persuasive letter and sent to her majesty." On this occasion Throgmorton showed himself a warm friend to Mary's succession in England, and advised clemency to the banished lords as one mean to secure it. Mary, highly esteeming him and convinced by his reasons, resolved to follow his counsels. Elizabeth never willingly remitted anything of that rigour against the Puritans which she loved to believe it politic to exercise, but they were fortunate enough to find an almost avowed patron in Leicester, and secret favourers in several of her ministers and counsellors, and during the persecutions of the Catholics which followed the marriage of Mary, she was compelled to press upon them with a less heavy hand. 
archbishop parker who was proceeding with much self-satisfaction and success in the task of silencing by the pains of suspension and deprivation all scruples of conscience among the clergy respecting habits and ceremonies was now mortified to find his zeal restrained by the interference of the queen herself while the exulting puritan studied to improve to the utmost the temporary connivance of the ruling powers End of section 19.